Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. I'm Dr. Brad Reedy. Today's August 4th, 2021. Tonight's topic, how to talk to your children and others about wilderness therapy. On the surface, I think you we, we might think it's a very um, elementary subject, right? A very simple subject. And while I'm going to talk about some very simple and practical things for those of you that are you know, thinking about sending a child to wilderness or those of you who have a child in wilderness and you don't know quite how to talk to your family and friends about it. I'm also going to talk about what I think are some of the fundamental principles underlying this, this task, this, this skill, this, this, um, this thing that we, we have to do. So no matter where you are on the continuum, I think this can be a helpful topic for this evening. I'm going to start off with talking to your child about it. And this will be something you'll hear me say over and over and over again. Um, and I don't think it's limited to a child in the wilderness. I think it could be really anything that you present to a child or introduce to a child that you think that they might not like or might be unhappy with, any kind of boundary or, or limit or, or consequence. And the phrase that I'm going to be repeating tonight over and over again is don't sell it. I think the biggest mistake that people make when presenting a consequence or a boundary to somebody is they try to sell the other person on the virtues, try to sell the other person even on the reasoning, on the justification of it, but mostly trying to sell the person that in the end they're going to be happy about it. It's going to be for them and they're going to like it or enjoy it or benefit from it. While I believe those things may happen and often do happen, the, the idea of selling it is going to be counterproductive for you. The simple analogy that I always use is when you're waiting for a big blockbuster movie to come out or something you've been looking forward to, or there's a lot of hype about something out there, some some song, some some movie, some television show, it rarely lives up to the hype, right? That the expectation is set so high. We know from research and psychology that one of the best predictor of outcome, of satisfaction, of outcomes is expectations going in. So if, if you raise expectations, even if those are accurate, even if they're telling the truth, the person is likely to see the negative. It's a, it's a human characteristic, right? To see the faults, to see the flaws, to see how it doesn't measure up. And while most of our clients, most of our students graduate from the program, talking about it with some kind of affinity or affection, um, selling them that on the front end, it will be at cross purposes with them accepting it in the in the initial period, initial stages. You know, the question about whether or not to tell your adolescent child, and I'll get to young adults in a minute. I think that's a, a question that's at, uh, at the foremost of most people's mind. There's not a clear answer to it. Really, it comes down to, will your child go to the program? Do you think you can get your child into the program? without a fight, without a run risk, without chaos, without abuse, without lying. Can you get them there without that? If you can, and it's up to you, then telling them might be what you decide to do. Now, I will tell you this. While I'm going to talk about transport in just a moment, and adolescents will complain about transports, transports after in the program, I think it can be one of those most humane and clear ways to send a child to the program. You haven't you haven't held back on your discussion that things weren't going well. It's not the first time you've tried something with them. You've been foreshadowing this for a time. 
And the transport isn't an abdication of responsibility. It's not deferring to somebody else and asking them to do it for you. It's showing up with the transporter to the child and saying, these, these folks are going to take you to a program that we've decided on. And, and, and the implied messages were not negotiating. Now, some children might talk about it being a betrayal. And in a therapeutic sense, it is a betrayal. We talk about therapeutic betrayal being a healthy thing. It's the same kind of betrayal that if somebody in your life starts to set a boundary where before there was none, there was not one, that's a betrayal. So you laying down the line, laying down the, the, the drawing the line in the sand and saying we, we've arrived at it or we've crossed over it and I'm not negotiating and I'm not going to capitulate and I'm not going to have a dialogue or a debate or an argument or a fight about it is the boundary. And, and professional transport companies will help you with that um, on the front end. They'll, they'll prep you for it. You'll be able to, to um, have a discussion, a very short discussion with your child before you introduce them to the, to the transporter and essentially walk out of the program, walk out of, of the room. So I want to prepare you for that. I want to prepare you for, for that inevitability. Um, I want to tell you that um, you have permission and the research demonstrates, this is very important, the research doesn't demonstrate a difference between children that are introduced to the program by their parents and, and children that are transported to the program. I will tell you this, when transports are not used, and I talk about this in a blog that I wrote, when transporters, professional transporters are not used, it's very often a longer beginning. It's a process where um, they're not quite sure that you sent them to the program that they're at. Um, because of the way you talked about it, because of the way that you sold it to them, they're not quite convinced that you're really sure about this. And oftentimes it takes a letter or two or maybe even a phone call for them to settle in. They, they essentially will say, well, I chose to come to the program, even if you weren't giving them a choice. I chose to come to the program, therefore I can choose out of the program. And of course, my assumption is that you're past that, right? You're, you're not at the point where you're giving them a choice, where you're giving them the opportunity. If you want to read more about this, I wrote a blog on it. You can simply Google transport and, and Brad Reedy or, or Malia is going to leave the link for you there. And you can look that up and read that over. Keep it simple and vague. This this is where we start to touch in 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 uh, into boundaries in general. Simple and vague is better. I'm not vague. I'm not talking about vague for the purpose of deception. I'm talking about vague because the more specifically you get into the details, wilderness therapy is such a profound experience that there's no one of the ways of thinking about it is. No two people have ever been in the same wilderness program because of their perception, because of their background, because of how they step into it. So very simple and vague is better. We, we've decided that we can't give you what you need at home. We're sending you to this program in the hopes that you'll get what you need. And it's an outdoor therapy program. It's a program that, that, that does therapy, but in the outdoors. Whether or not you you show them the website. Again, I think that's tricky. I think that can be selling them. You know, our website, I'm proud of it. It's an honest website. 
but it's intended to, to evoke in, in people um, an emotional response of healing and, and well-being and hope. And those first few weeks for your child aren't going to feel like that. And so setting them up with a, with a beautiful website like ours that, that tells the truth, but tells it from our perspective, will often create a, a greater sense of betrayal. Now moving to, to young adults. Oftentimes we encourage you to follow the intervention model, right? Hiring an, an interventionist or working with a consultant that can facilitate an intervention with you and for you where you're saying to the child, we're not willing to support you under all the conditions. You know, we're, we're willing to support you in this limited range. I think a lot of parents are worried about it being the leverage being cut off and threatening. And you're not saying we won't support you. In fact, everybody believes in this. Even your child believes that there's not a blank check in terms of the support that you're going to give to them, but that, that it has parameters. The, the difference in this case of, of sending a young adult child to a program is you've narrowed down the options. We're willing to support you going to this program. If you don't want to, you're welcome to go, go on it on your own. Most interventionists don't encourage you to give them more than one choice. But if they do, then that's fine too. You know, within these range of options, these are the choice. Again, here's what we are willing to support. The, these phrases are, 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 again, they're central to the idea of communicating a boundary to somebody. Young adults um, can talk to the program, the admissions counselor, the therapist, if you want them to. When I've talked to young adults, and I've talked to a couple of adolescents, which I don't encourage, but in some cases it's been sprung on me and I've been willing to do it. I won't sell it to them. I won't sell it to your adolescent. I'll say th things like it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. It's going to be unpleasant. And we think it has in it um, essential elements to facilitate healing, to find yourself. Um, again, don't sell it. The biggest, even aftercare, this re relates to aftercare or, or any boundary, right? Trying to sell it. This is for your own interest, for your best interest. You're going to like it. You're going to be grateful. Yes, even parents that say it'll be hard in the beginning. I remember I had an educational consultant one time explain, according to them, as honestly and, and frankly as they could to an adolescent. And the adolescent still said they didn't tell me anything. And when I brought back a letter and showed it to the consultant, the consultant is not only did I show them that, but I pulled up the website where it described those features. So again, you can't, there's no softer, easier way. It's a boundary in both cases, adolescent or, or young adult. Ideally don't lie. You know, don't lie about length of stay. You, you can, you don't have to answer everything. I'm not willing to talk about that or we'll see, or I'll be thinking about it. Um, but, but that's why I like transport so much because it's honest. It's really difficult. And I think some of you might be able to relate to this. It's very difficult to get an adolescent to come to the program without lying, you know, willingly. I'll tell you this too. And I, this is dangerous for me to say because everybody thinks they might, they might fall into this category, but my children, I could talk to them ahead of time. 
I have talked to two of my adolescent children ahead of time before they entered the program because I wasn't negotiating. They're not street savvy. They weren't run risks. I didn't worry about self-harm or suicidality or any kind of chaos or fight. I just came to the conclusion in both of the cases that I've been confronted with in my life and my family with my children and said, this is what we're doing. And I had a conversation where I tried to employ all the principles that I'm talking about tonight. Again, you can show the young adult the website, but, but, but be careful. Realize that selling a boundary, selling a limit, selling a decision that you have made tends to backfire on you. And there's no difference in outcomes. The research shows us between somebody who's transported, somebody who's been given little information and somebody who has a lot of information or to who, who comes quote unquote willingly. I'm going to, I'm going to expand now to talk about wilderness therapy more broadly and how you might talk about it with your extended family and friends. Before I get into all of that, this is more of a kind of a, a knowledge base for you. You don't have to say everything. In, 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 in some respect, I will say to you that I think it's, we'll get to this by the end, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a healthy endeavor for you to go too far out of your way to try to convince any, everybody that you've made the right decision. You don't have to get people to agree with you. But I do want to give you some knowledge for those who are genuinely curious about the process, about the, the, the method, about what we do here. The most simple way that I can talk about wilderness therapy is it's, it's, a, it's a residential treatment setting, right? You're living there and getting treatment for substance use disorder or for mental health issues. The, the main difference is it's done in a wilderness setting. It's a delivery method. It's the stage, it's the backdrop. I think the thing that's probably most surprising to people is the level of clinical sophistication and support. You have really fantastic therapists who choose to do that. And they're equipped with wonderful training to be able to talk to you, explain it. Even when things aren't going well with your child, when they're struggling, when they're resistant, when they're not participating, the therapist not only is creative in, in coming up with sound clinical interventions to try to help them get unstuck, but they're expert in explaining to you what's going on. One of the things that happens in wilderness therapy in our program, in fact, this, is, this was a, a huge contribution that we made to the, the change in wilderness therapy, is the weekly phone calls where we spend the time conceptualizing with you, explaining to you what's going on. You also have a, a parent mentor and a parent, um, uh, you have a parent coordinator who can help you along with the day-to-day -day process. It's a delivery method. It's small group living, you know, seven to 10 um, clients in a group, three to four staff in a group. And that kind of setting, it, it becomes a microcosm for the family. I like to think of Willers as a small box, a small setting, a small container where the principles uh, of life are, are in play, but it's in a much more manageable setting. The wonderful thing about wilderness, because it's in small group settings, is that none of the groups ever see each other, and therefore, you can have, more than most programs, a relatively decent range of diagnoses. One group, for example, that we have specializes in autism spectrum disorder. Other groups specialize in 
addiction, some in mood disorders, right? Some in adolescent substance abuse. And of course, there's some, some overlap in some of these groups. So you can really specialize the treatment approach in the, in the treatment setting. There's a mindfulness, you know, being present. You're, you're away from all the distractions. You're away from friends at home. You're away from school even to a large degree. Sometimes, for example, people will ask me about, can I bring books to, to, to read for, for entertainment? And I, and I say, you know, we're big fans of reading. We think that reading makes a big difference in people's life. But right now we're going to narrow the focus and we're going to supply books that we think are, are, are related to the treatment that you and your family are doing as you go. So we do try to funnel the, 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 the family and the child into a kind of a, a focus of treating the mental health issue or the addiction issue. We talk about it being a digital detox. When I started working in Willard's therapy 25 years ago, this was somewhat relevant. Today, it is obvious. You can Google and read research everywhere on the web that talks about how being removed from screens, being out in nature, resets your nervous system, relaxes your nervous system, um, gives you a, a greater focus, elevates your mood. There are so many things inherent about wilderness therapy that are... Um, are things that, that doctors would recommend to anybody struggling with mental health issues and mood disorders, right? We would definitely talk about exercise, being outdoors, a healthier diet, a regular sleep schedule. All of those things are inherent in a wilderness therapy program like ours. On top of that, we, we have mindfulness and meditation activities and yoga. So we're taking the natural setting and we're overlaying it with uh, skills and tools that are going to that, that enhance the mindfulness. I have found for myself, I have found that when I am out in the wilderness, um, there's no escaping. You have to feel. I used to say to my children when they were younger, I used to say that I'm going to visit the sad boys in the mountains to help them feel sad, to help them deal with their sadness. And if you think of therapy very, very simply as learning how to feel, in other words, replacing the symptoms with feeling your way through them, with experiencing them, what better place than wilderness away from screens, away from fast foods and foods with preservatives, getting regular sleep, all of that. To me, even though wilderness therapy is thought to be not a mainstream intervention, it's an obvious intervention. You've probably seen quotes that say that, that you know, being out of Wi-Fi connection is the new luxury. You know, being out of cell phone connection is the new luxury. Being unplugged is the new luxury. I remember years ago, we used to vacation in Lake Powell and our cell phones didn't work. We actually had satellite phones because of what we do for a living. So we would bring a satellite phone and we could all check our messages when and if we wanted to or as needed. And now they have cell phone reception in lots of places that they they that previously they didn't have. And it actually is kind of disappointing because you're still chained to it. I don't think I need to talk more about the, the burden uh, of technology and accessibility in our lives, but wilderness therapy intrinsically does that. I think of our program as a three-tiered vehicle. We're doing assessment. We're slowing things down and assessing what's going on with your child. 
We can do that formally with psychological testing. You can order order that, have that done. Or we're doing it through what we call natural observation, which is watching them in the group, watching their day-to-day -day life, watching how they respond to the challenges of living in small group nomadic settings. Assessment is the first leg of the stool, if you will. The second leg of the stool is therapy. You know, treating their issues with evidence-based therapy. We're using CBT, DBT, 12-step as needed, right? ACT therapy. All the therapies you would use in a doctor's office or at a hospital are being used in the wilderness. That was, for, for those of you who might not know the history, and you don't need to know the history, that was the shift that we made in 1998 when we opened up. Our biggest contribution was, back at the time, there was a, there was a, a wilderness therapy approach that was intuitive, that was definitely beneficial. And what we, a few of us thought was, we can make it really clinically grounded. And so in 1998, in the summer of 1998, when we first opened our doors, moving away from the more traditional wilderness therapy models, we brought in a clinical overlay that was significant. And today I would put our clinicians and our clinical approach up against any treatment program, any hospital, any psychiatric facility in the world. Fantastic therapists with fantastic models. Wilderness therapy is a time to slow down. To, to start to build the, the bridge of communication between parents and, and child and to make long-term decisions not in a crisis. Ideally, we don't want to make long-term decisions when we're in a crisis. So wilderness therapy is a pause and an opportunity, like I said, to reset. I like to think of it, when I, I speak of it more poetically, I say wilderness therapy is like life, only more so. And I want to be as clear as I can about this. And this is a a core passion of mine. And I've been saying this for 15 or 20 years. This is not about breaking kids down. Yes, there is a rawness to it. Yes, there is a challenge aspect to it. Yes, you, you, you can't hide and you get exposed because I was telling this to somebody just recently. Do you remember when you were a little kid and you used to go and spend the night or spend a couple of days with your best friend? And after like a day, you got sick of each other and you ended up in a fight. And the next day you were fine. And that's because there was no place to retreat. When you were 12, you could, if you got in a little spat with your, your best friend, you could walk home or go home. But living in these small groups, everything comes up. So I get asked all the time about how do we deal with resistance? And the fact of the matter is that wilderness does it for you. The use of metaphor, you know, using nature, is a wonderful way to bypass resistance. All, all you need to know about resistance is this. If you walk in through the front door and announce yourself and say, we're going to talk about your depression, we're going to talk about your self-harm, we're going to talk about your substance use, you're likely to see the, the individual raise the wall, right? The defense is evoked, provoked. But wilderness therapy, you can kind of go through the back door. You're dealing with building a fire by rubbing sticks together, and you see the frustration tolerance, the delay of gratification. You see somebody participating in, in ready for in cooking dinner. You see the communication. You see the problem solving. 
you see somebody being away from home and missing a bar mitzvah or a holiday or a birthday or a family reunion. And you, we, you, you, don't, you don't rub their nose in it, but you see them longing for things that they had been taking for granted. We know this. We know that people are, are that there's no correlation between having things and stuff and comfort and luxury and gratitude. In fact, it's often when we are, when, when the creature comforts are removed from our life that we become more grateful for things. The Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh said, the first thing that people usually think about when they get a toothache is the non-toothache. Is the reality that they haven't been grateful for the non-toothache. So if you don't have a toothache right now, which I hope you don't, you can take a moment after this broadcast and be grateful for the non-toothache. That's mindfulness, right? The stuff in our lives proves in many cases to be a distraction. So using metaphor, bypassing resistance by going in the back door, small group living, like I said before, it's a wonderful microcosm for the family. I'm going to set the picture for you. I'll do a day in, in, in the life of in just a moment. But you're talking about three or four staff and on average, you know, eight students or clients in a group. And the staff don't leave for eight days. There are no staff shifts to worry about, right? You're not getting along with the morning staff, but not the evening staff. You kind of have to work through it. One of the complaints that parents have about their children is, yes, they can get along with so-and-so, or they can do this for an hour, or they can look good in a session. But we're not, we're not getting along. We're not making it work. And so the small group living, especially with the staff shifts that I just described, tends to, again, bring everything to the surface. The separation creates a, a, an opportunity for identity. In Eric Erickson's developmental stages, we talk about who, who's the, the, the one that most people accept as the, the kind of uh, author of describing psychosocial stages in human beings, like the tasks that we go through. And during adolescence and young adulthood, the task is identity formation. And identity formation is related to a lot of things. But one of the things that, that gets in the way of it is we, as Americans and other cultures, we get into intimate relationships too quickly before we know ourselves. Again, I probably don't have to explain that to you all. So finding some sense of who you are is facilitated by the distance, by the time away. We're not separating you and them in the first few weeks is a punishment. We're not, we're not saying this is a natural consequence. We're saying just as a doctor, if you were received in the emergency room, would send the family out of the room. Why, do, why would a doctor send mom and dad out of the room if a child is in a car accident and they're dealing with them in the emergency room or the trauma, trauma room? It's because the parents are a distraction. The parents' presence will get in the way. That doesn't mean they don't love them the most. That doesn't mean that they're not going to come back in once things have stabilized. But sometimes the act of, of, of having to write a letter to you and wait, in many cases, days to, to, to get a return, requires you to find a deeper sense of yourself instead of the ping-ponging back and forth that we do. When I first started in 1996, and, and the program that I worked at before we started ours, 
I remember it was it was mostly snail mail back then, right? The post office. And so often letters would, would pass each other in the mail. You would have to write a response and send it before you got the response from your child and vice versa. So you can't manage or control the response. And then you are more prone to speak from a deeper place, a more honest and core truth. That's all about identity. Like I said, resistance, the most common form of resistance is not the one that you're thinking of. It's not rebellion or oppositionality. The most common form of resistance in all psychotherapies is compliance. Now, I know a lot of you would said, I'd be really grateful if my child would be that, that type of resistant. But for those of you who have therapy-savvy children or children who can look good for an hour or two, you know that the barrier that, res that, that compliance is to making progress. It's the same problem that we have if we go to our therapist and we don't tell them everything, right? I had a friend, I think I've told you before, who said he stopped going to therapy. When I asked him why, he said, because I'm wasting my time lying to my therapist. And I kind of chuckled. And he said, what is this? I said, I said to my friend, I said, we all lie to our therapists. We all present a good face to our therapist. The goal is to keep going until you can tell the truth. And it's also to have a therapist that you feel safe enough to eventually tell the truth. So we help get around the resistance through the experiential work. I haven't even mentioned the experiential aspect of therapy yet. Experiential therapy is effective because most of our trauma, most of our trauma is not stored in the verbal part of the brain. It's buried deeper in the pre-verbal or non-verbal part of the brain. And that's why movement and, and ritual and, and exercises can, can evoke an emotional response or a trigger that we were able to keep suppressed, repressed before. So experiential therapy helps to bring up more so that we can treat it and it helps to integrate more because it involves all of our senses in our entire body. There is a core aspect of self-esteem is self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is what I do makes a difference. And, and without thinking about it in terms of breaking them down, it's a challenge. It's work. You can't take it for granted. The creature comforts are limited out there, very limited. And so even the clients that I would put, the very few, very small percentage of clients that I would say, well, I don't know if that did a lot for them, even they would tell you, I did something hard. I've been amazed to see some of my most, and I'm talking about a handful out of 1,100 of my own caseload. I've seen those ones, those, those handful that have done the, the least amount of work out of the 1,100. I've seen them say, I did something difficult. I overcame. That, that child that comes in the first week and says, I can't do this. I can't deal with the weather. I can't deal with the bugs. I can't deal with this group. I can't deal with not having my friends, my screens, my whatever, my music. Our response innately is, we think you can. We don't say that. But our response implies it. The very first thing I learned about children 
in, in wilderness therapy was they're much more resilient than they or their parents think that they, they are. So self-efficacy and self-esteem are a big part of it. And the research bears that out. It also has something to do with external versus internal locus of control. External locus of control says that what happens to me determines my happiness, my success. That's external locus of, of control. Internal locus of control is what I do, how I live my life, and what I choose will make the biggest difference. So wilderness therapy shows wonderful outcomes in, in moving from external to internal locus of control because Mother Nature is not negotiating because you can't control the elements. Because sitting with a group of kids and a staff and, and staff for a week, you 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 are confronted with the reality that the only thing you can control is your reaction. I mentioned the microcosm. That's why so often we have your, your child for three or four or five days and we have that first phone call with you after you've talked to the parent coordinator and the admissions folks, the therapist will have the first phone call with you. And we can tell you all about your child and you'll say, that's him, that's her, that's them. You're right on because it's exposed because wellness therapy exposes it. I've mentioned the removal of distractions and, and defenses, the inability to manipulate wilderness, the sterile assessment environment. It's not sterile in terms of the way we would talk about an operating room being sterile, obviously. It's the opposite in many ways. But it's sterile in terms of you've moved away a lot of variables. That's why we don't like to change medication quickly or on a regular basis. We're conservative with changing medications one way or the other. We defer to our psychiatric staff, but as a philosophy, you don't want to introduce two or three or four or five variables at once because then you don't know what's working and what's not working. So you, you, you reduce the number of variables. That is why, and this is so important, children actually do better in wilderness than other places in their life. That is why they will say it's easier in some ways than other places. That's why they'll leave us and go to a therapeutic school where they're handed two or three more balls to juggle and they'll drop them all and everybody will think that they've lost everything. But really they're just being introduced to more peers, more temptations, more distractions, more tasks like school or work, right? And so because of that, that influx of variables, they're going to drop all the balls. They still know how to juggle three like they were doing back in wilderness. But now that they've been handed three more and they have six, it's going to be a struggle. The remo removal of negative influences, yes and no. You know, there are going to be kids in the group that are struggling more than your child and some that are struggling less. And we want to see how they operate with both. Right. If I could, if I could chart out the ideal, I would love it if at one point your child was the highest functioning member of the group and seeing how they dealt with that. And I would also like to see how they are the, when they are the lowest member functioning member of the group and see how they respond to positive peer culture. And they'll, they'll probably of course be somewhere in the middle, but that initial pulling away from their peer system, we get a much more clear view of what's going on with them. And it's observed. Sometimes students have ended up in the program with one of their friends from home. That can happen randomly. Doesn't happen often, but it can happen. 
And we encourage parents to, to pause before we move a child from one group to another. Because, yes, the, the, the negative influence might be there, but it's going to be there when they're done. It's going to be there even if they don't know somebody. And let's watch them. We have such a level of supervision and containment that we can see and watch how they respond to it. There is a vulnerability and, and being outside of their comfort zone. It's a cultural shift. Jamie Gill, my therapist, when she writes about it, in fact, she actually refers to wellness therapy in our program in one of her books. She talks about this idea that it's such a cultural shock and shift for people that that's what gives you the perspective about seeing your home life more clearly. It's the same, con the same concept as the fish is the last one to discover water. You can't see the forest until you're out of it. So the cultural shift brings an awareness, brings a clarity. The development of interdependence. I love the idea of interdependence in wilderness. First of all, we feed them. We make sure that they're dry, meaning me, we, the staff, and, and the therapists. We teach them how to cook. We teach them how to build a shelter to protect them from the rain and the snow and the sun. You don't usually get that with your therapist. Even if you're in a residential school, the staff and the therapist aren't building your room with you. They're not, they're not telling you how to build a fire. It just kind of gets provided for you like it does at home. But because the, 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 the con confluence, the, 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 the combination of taking care of you physically and taking care of you emotionally becomes more overt, there's a built-in kind of trust there. When I bring out fresh fruit or vegetables to the group when I visit, I'm giving them something literally, but I'm also giving them something symbolically when I visit. And then the futility of the old coping. Yes, students are going to try what has worked for them in the past. They're going to try it with you. They're going to try it with us. They're going to try it with each other. So we want to see what has worked for them. And, and for them to have some experience of the futility of their old coping is really important. Now a little bit more into the therapy. Um, Abraham Maslow is a famous sociologist from many years ago who taught that our, our life is built kind of like a pyramid and that if we don't have our basic needs taken care of, we can't really focus on higher level, more abstract needs like belonging or a sense of self, identity. That's his model. It's very commonly accepted without challenge in American culture. What we learn from primitive culture is that it's in the context of surviving and struggling that people understand what it means to belong, what it means to be a self. So the, the, I learned this in, in a college course that I had, I had never heard of Willard's therapy, didn't hear of it for many years after the course. And when I went back to it after I started teaching in wilderness and being a wilderness therapist, I thought, this is the theory. The theory was Maslow got a little bit of it wrong. The primitive cultures will, their, their religion, their, their rituals, right? Their daily practices are, are spiritual and practical. The story of their legends relates to how to survive, how to gather food how to protect themselves against the, the, the elements or the weather or their, their, their neighboring tribes. 
And so wilderness therapy is integrative. The simplest example to, to, to explain this, this idea is this. Think about many, many years ago when families might get together and make ice cream. Somebody's in charge of the ingredients. Somebody's in charge of pouring salt and, and, and ice around to keep it cold. And somebody's, this is even before electricity, somebody's in charge of the hand crank. That's how ice cream would have been made pre-industrial revolution. But even after electricity, where it's plugged in and it's spinning on its own, you, you have to monitor it. So what do we do now? We go to the store or even more so, we order it from Instacart or Grubhub and somebody delivers a half a gallon of ice cream to save time. But as my professor said back in the early 90s, to save time for what? What are we doing with that, that time that was saved? We're watching TV. We're on our screens. There was a great anthropologist that said, once I, I found out that I could, I could get my peas, canned or frozen, and I didn't have to shell peas with my children anymore, I had to ask myself, how was I going to pass on whatever was happening while we were shelling peas together? Because she said, it was more than just the act of getting fresh peas. Something else was happening during that process. So wilderness therapy, especially our kind of wilderness therapy, suggests that it's in the working of daily life, of cooking food, uh, of leave no trace camping, of small group communal living, spreading out the food evenly amongst everybody to carry for the week so nobody's uh, carrying an, uh, an uneven share of the supplies and food. All of that becomes the backdrop to teach what it means to be a person and to be in relationship to other people. I talk about this in The Journey of the Rogue Parent. One of my favorite quotes from one of the, the, the founders of Wilderness Therapy said, whenever we adopt what, we have, what, what we have come to call contrived experiences, the overall impact is diminished for the participants. Exercises, workbooks, team building exercises, ropes courses, while ropes courses might introduce the experiential aspect of it, it's still contrived. You, you don't need it to have dinner or to stay out of the rain. Some of you might know of the organizational psychologist, Adam Grant. I posted here an episode from his. It's called How to Trust People You Don't Like. It's a funny intervention. So you can go to Adam Grant's um, podcast. You can listen to it. You can Google Adam Grant and how to trust people you don't like. And he talks about how NASA and Harvard has studied this. They realized exactly what I'm telling you. This is recent. They realized that um, creating team building ex experiences isn't as effective as sending them out on a wilderness experience. Because on a wilderness experience where they have to navigate and cook together and work together, all the issues of, of team building come up, but they're more natural. You, you become more vulnerable. You have to rely on each other. 
and you get to know each other and you get to know yourself. So evoke therapy's wilderness model, primitive living, which means we don't go to base camps. We don't, we're not in cabins, nomadic living, which means we're hiking. We're not doing adventure. We're not doing whitewater rafting. We're not doing rappelling. We're not fishing, but we're nomadically moving from place to place. It is a wonderful context to uncover all that's going on in your life and in your psyche. And NASA knows it too, because they don't, if you'll, you'll listen to, if you listen to his podcast, if the group hasn't worked together prior to, to, to whatever mission they're preparing for, they will go on a wilderness adventure, a primitive living nomadic wilderness adventure. Another aspect of it is this, this, this is from a book called Nurture Shock. Nurture Shock. And they talk about this shift in our culture from recreation away from work into recreation. The quote, one of the quotes that they kind of head their chapter with is from Thomas Edison, where he says, opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. We understand why recreation is appealing to families. First of all, everybody's happy. There's less stress, guilt, or personal discomfort for the parents. Um, we're protecting children against pain and discomfort of, of failure or struggle. Sigmund Freud said, if you want to, to help somebody to grow, give them a task that they can't possibly complete. And what we know about grit and resilience is that children that have to work through failure do better. Children that are in, incredibly gifted and, and in fact are told so, tend to choose less challenging activities or to cheat or to quit or to avoid. I have I can't tell you how many times I've sat and watched a child work on a bojo fire. Now, I love it when a child rubs sticks together and gets a fire. It's a beautiful process to watch, and then they blow it into flames right for the parent. It's, it's a magical moment. But I will tell you that the, the times that I've been more impressed are when a child works at it for an hour or two in front of a parent, and the parent says, you know what? The thing that's the takeaway for me here is I've never seen my child work this hard at something that they couldn't accomplish. There's more to this uh, on in the book, Nurture Shock, like we don't want to overpraise. We don't want to praise for, for talent or, or, or for, for um, capacity. We want to praise for effort because the child has control over effort. They don't have control over their genetics, their genetic predispositions. It also, recreational programming also means that the child might not be mad at the parent, which I think, I wrote about this very simply in the, in the journey of the rogue parent. I said, unless that issue is addressed, family therapy will not make its way to a successful conclusion. Until the parent is willing for the child to hate them, be angry with them, think that the parent let them down, the family won't make the progress that they need. Speaking on grit and resilience, Dr. Carol Dweck from Columbia University said, emphasizing effort, which is what this is all about. Emphasizing effort gives a child a, vari a variable that they can control. They come to see themselves as in control of their success. Emphasizing natural intelligence takes it out of the child's control and provides no good recipe for responding to failure. And furthermore, from Nurture Shock, Speaking of one particular 
case study. They said Thomas didn't want to try things he couldn't be successful at, his father says. <clears throat> Some things came very quickly to him, but when they didn't, he gave up almost immediately, concluding, I'm not good at this. With no more than a glance, Thomas was dividing the world into two, things he was naturally good at and things that he wasn't. And finally, the, 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 the creator of uh, reality therapy said, no human being will work hard at anything unless they believe they are working for competence. There is something about competence that makes us feel good about ourselves, something about going through something difficult. We don't put undue stress and pressure. We don't make them fail for the sake of failing, but doing something hard brings a sense of competence and confidence. What does a day look like? Probably one of the most common questions I'm asked. To break it down simply, wake up at eight, mindfulness, mindfulness and orientation, like what the day, what the plan for the day is going to be, if we're going to move camp or not. Having breakfast and getting rid of the fire pit. Right now we're on fire ban because of the, 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 the wildfires everywhere. So they have to clean up the, the, the fire pad and the fire pan. Having a morning group could be a meditation group, a mindfulness group, something left over from the day before, something to set the intentions for the day, hiking for a couple of hours, lunch, personal time every day where they can work on letters, the books that they've been given given by the therapists, any of their, their curriculum, either their therapeutic curriculum or the curriculum for the, the schoolwork that they do have. Um, hiking again, arriving at the campsite, chores, organization, setting up the camp, building the fire, cooking the dinner, dinner preparation and eating, group therapy at night. That's the big group. And then going to sleep, maybe some games in the evening. Um, maybe a song, maybe somebody plays the guitar. All throughout the week, standing groups happen all day, every day. That's a five to 10 minute group that somebody calls because they want to talk about communication or problem solving or frustration or homesickness. Individual sessions with the therapist happen during the therapist visit, but also with the staff that are assigned to them. We have two or three days where we don't hike so that they can get all their resupplies and work on their reading and writing with a little bit more focus and the therapist can visit and run some groups. Laundry happens twice a week where they get new clothes, showers twice a week, uh, food distributions twice a week, fresh fruit um, and vegetables every day, ideally. Personal time happens um, as needed. And there are three kinds of curriculum. There's hard skills like learning how to tie knots and make a bow drill fire. There's soft skills like learning how to communicate using an I feel statement. And there's therapy assignments like reading this book about depression or filling out this workbook about self-harm or substance abuse. Academic curriculum, we have accredited curriculum for our adolescents. Letters to and from home, of course. Those come in with a the therapist and then leave with the therapist. So we are the mail carriers. Solos is hopefully your child will get at least one, maybe two times where they're at a place where they can go on a solo, where they're sitting out a hundred yards or so, not quite that long, within a hundred yard radius of the staff. And we go and check on them and they sit in their spot and they spend time reflecting, meditating, staying awake, but not reading and getting distracted by assignments, but rather just sitting with themselves and seeing how they like the company. Chores are a part of it, but mostly everything becomes grist for the mill. The goals of wilderness therapy are to get their intention, get their attention, right? There is 
a focus that comes in for the family too and for the child. It's to manage a crisis, to interrupt a crisis, inter, inter, to create a treatment plan that not only applies while they're here, but also leads to what what's the best things for them here. Are they responding to experience? Are they responding to talk therapy? Are they responding to peers? Are they responding to mentoring? Do they respond to group therapy versus individual therapy? That all informs us about what's going to work for them going forward. Like I talked about, you can make an assessment. And the family does work. Weekly parent phone calls, these live broadcasts, these broadcasts that are, are, are archived or recorded on the podcast app, my books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You, we encourage you to write those. There might be others that you're encouraged to read along with your child or separate from your child. So we create a, a family system focus of change. Preparing students for the next setting. Willis kind of takes off the sharp edges, the demonstrative behavior. They will qualify for a program that they might not qualify if they hadn't gone to Willis. So Willis is kind of like, um, it's kind of like spring training for baseball, right? You go there, there are drills, there are exercises, there's practice games, and then who's ready for the season? You're going to go to AAA, you're going to go to the majors, right? And sometimes you can make a difference in spring training. I talked about the softening effect, taking the sharp edges off demonstrative behavior. We have a pretty um, low floor. You know, you're familiar with the, the phrase high ceiling. Wilderness therapy has a pretty low floor. We can take a pretty low functioning child. There are some rule outs that are health centered and psychotic symptoms are, are a rule out or, or um, certain, uh, certain medical conditions can be a rule out, high degrees of suicidality, aggression toward others. These are all rule outs. But aside from that, we can take a pretty shut down, pretty depressed, pretty anxious, pretty limited child and to, to start to build a, a foundation for them to go into a therapeutic school or program afterwards. And it changes the level of care. It changes what they qualify for, especially for our ASD groups, our, our autism spectrum groups. There is a socialization classroom, if you will, that happens because of the small group living. Now, this is where I want to get to what I think is the, the most enjoyable part of this. Um, you don't have to justify yourself to your child or to anybody else in your life. I want to read you this story that came from a book called The More Beautiful World That Our Hearts Know Is Possible by Charles Eisenstein. He talks and speaks about the spiritual, the intersect between spirituality, philosophy, and, and, and climate change. So it's, it's not a traditional climate change book about solutions or, or the kind of the, the necessarily the, the practical action oriented, but it leads to it. At any rate, this is what he, this is a section from his book that I wanna read to you. He says, one time after a talk in England, a young woman asked me, if I flew around giving lots of speeches? Yes, I replied. She then asked, how do you justify that? What do you mean? She began to explain about the carbon footprint of air travel, at which point I interrupted. Oh, I don't justify it. I do it because it makes me feel alive. It gives me pleasure. I do it because I like it. I went on to say, now I could concoct a justification if you like, 
Maybe I could say that I believe that the overall effect of my flying and speaking, which sometimes changes the course of people's lives, outweighs the carbon dioxide produced as a result of my air travel. Maybe, um, maybe some people will hear me and choose a career in permaculture rather than tax law. Maybe they will have the courage to live a life that will contribute to an ecological society. But even though I think this is true, I would be lying to you if I told you that that is my justification. The real reason, the truth, is that I do it because I like it. And of course, the woman was aghast. When we heal from our attachment wounding, when we heal from our programming, when we become more clear about our boundaries, when we become more clear about our sense of self, we stop proving ourselves to the world. We stop trying to be right. In Al-Anon, they say no is a complete sentence. We learn to set a boundary with our children, with our partners, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our extended family, without explanation or justification. Again, if people want to understand what we're doing, you can go to our website and look at the research there. You can listen to any of these podcasts where I talk about the theory and efficacy of wilderness therapy. That podcast exists also. You can read my books where I talk about it and reference it. But the fact of the matter is in this work and the work of, of boundary setting and healthy boundaries, it's not about being right. Just the other day, somebody asked me on social media after asking me a question about their child and my thoughts about it. And I gave them my thoughts without telling them what to do. They got clear about what the, the, the boundary was that they wanted to set with their child. They said, can I or should I tell him that I talked to you about it. And I said, well, I wouldn't because then you're still trying to be right. You're saying Dr. Brad Reedy or the expert or the University of Wisconsin psychological study shows that this work is not about being right. It's about being you, which is so much better, so much healthier. So what are the take homes? The take home is less is more. Keep it simple with your child, with your family, and you don't have to justify yourself and stop selling it. Stop selling your boundaries. Stop selling aftercare. Stop selling wilderness. Stop selling your parenting decisions. Just be yourself and let people be crazy about your version of living. And if placement is at risk, because if you tell your adolescent child, for example, or even tell a family member, it's okay to use a transport service. In fact, in my opinion, it's often more effective. Transporting may be the clearest and most humane, effective way to get your child to go to a program. And remember, boundaries are just boundaries and no is a complete sentence. All right, I'll go through a couple of things and then I'll, I'll set you up for the next broadcast. My two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You are on Amazon and Audible. The next online support group for current wilderness parents and, and alumni parents is tomorrow night, August 5th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. If you're an intensive alumni, the next support group is August 10th at 6 p.m. Just email malia at evoketherapy.com for more information. If you want to do a deep dive into your own work, our intensive finding you is for you. Um, we also have a, a, a one for our alumni. If you've been to finding you, you can do returning to you, which is in October, 
We also have these, these offerings online that are a little bit shorter, a lot less expensive. Contact intensives at evoketherapy.com for more information. We have virtual coaching for parents, individuals, even adolescents and young adults. So just contact Travis at evoketherapy.com if you would like virtual coaching um, using the, the evoke method, the evoke attachment-based, the, the, the things that I talk about in these broadcasts. We have pursuits of venture trips for families or for young adults. Think therapy light or sober fun or reconnecting to your work. We ask all current families, all current parents to go to six, six meetings, any combination of Al-Anon, CODA, Families Anonymous, Adult Children, or you can also use refugerecovery.org or nami.org for free and, and accessible psychological support, psychoeducation in your local community. All of these broadcasts are available on your favorite podcast app or Spotify. Just go to the podcast app and search Finding You at Evoke Therapy Podcast or go to soundcloud.com and search Finding You. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find us by using the handle at Evoke Therapy. Also, at Evoke Therapy Intensives is on Instagram. And I am on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Dr. Brad Reedy, at D-R-B-R-R-A-D-R-E-E-D-Y. You can find us on Facebook um, by searching Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And of course, our blog that is curated by Malia, wonderfully curated by Malia, has new content each week. My next broadcast will be Monday, August 9th at 6.30 p.m. It'll be a live Q&A. Any questions left over tonight? You can invite family and friends to attend. You can invite siblings to attend, or you can ask questions about them or, or for and on behalf of them. So I'll talk to you Monday night. I hope this is a helpful point of contact, and I hope this is a nice resource for those of you that are struggling at the beginning or even in the middle to talk about wellness therapy with those that you love. Thank you for and on behalf of your family for being willing to do your, do your work. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you Monday night at 6.30. Bye-bye. Bye.